electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Sarah Eisen at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. We kick off the month of October in Q4 with a government shutdown averted for now. Tons of Fed speak this week, a lot of eco data, no real relief in rates, 10-year 464 and futures are red. Our roadmap begins with this new month of trading and the beginning of Q4. All major indices coming off their first negative quarter of the year. We're also going to keep an eye on a lot of the EV makers, Rivian, NEO, and of course Tesla, all out with big delivery num- or delivery numbers that are of importance for us. We don't know how big. No. <laughs> and Kellogg's stack spinoff, Kellanova, set to begin trading today here at the NYSE. We're going to talk to the CEO in a CNBC exclusive later this hour. Let's begin with the markets. We've talked a lot about the pain we got through during Q3. Uh, a bunch of new notes this morning of uh, top pick lists out of the major uh, strategists. We'll see uh, as we are at least, Sarah, now guaranteed some data uh, this week. We weren't sure on Friday. Yeah, and so the, the thinking is, okay, maybe the November rate hike is back on the table because the Fed won't be flying blind into the next meeting. We are going to get the big jobs report on Friday. We'll get a jolts report before that where we get to see if job openings continue to come down. And then the CPI, the inflation report next week. And those will be the determinants. Now November is again looking like a coin flip on whether the Federal Reserve raises rates. But what's more interesting than that, Carl, is just the the backdrop here of, of rising Treasury yields, the market rates rising, despite the fact that we're still only expecting maybe one more or no more rate hikes for the Fed, the higher for longer mentality has really seeped in to the bond market and to the stock market as well. And I think that that's what you saw in the performance of September. And that's going to be the big question of what happens in October. Uh, Well, it was something we were discussing last week as we approach, I guess, highs in yield on the 10-year once again that we saw at the beginning of last week, although we backed off a bit in yield. So what do we think, Sarah? What are the key reasons here? that we continue to see this gravitation. Well, what's really interesting is that rates. it's coming in the face of softer economic data and falling stocks. And that doesn't usually happen. Usually treasuries insulate you, right, from, yep. from falling stocks. They protect you, they're safe havens, and you see yields come down as the economy softens. So, so then we begin to wonder, long-term, is the market thinking about higher inflation numbers? Is the market thinking that the Fed is just going to stay high for a very long time? Or are the fiscal concerns starting to creep in? I mean, I I can't believe that I'm going to talk about this, but the risk premium for for long-term rates turned positive for the first time in 2021. It's something the New York Fed tracks. It's a little wonky, but it, it basically is how much investors are demanding a premium to get paid for taking on the risk of holding long-term debt. And when it goes positive, it shows First of all, we haven't been positive for most of the last decade or so since the financial crisis. So they want more. They want to be paid more for taking on the risk. And, David, that could speak to the fiscal credibility that we have going in this country. Well, we've talked about that a lot, and I assume we will uh, in in weeks and months ahead as well. 
given the Shutdown averted doesn't matter. They no, listen, can. we have, right, we're running very large deficits. Uh, we have a lot of debt to sell in order to uh, fund those deficits. And we talk about a supply-demand imbalance as well. And that's going to be the risk heading into to 2024 is, is whether, look, we have to issue a lot of debt and there are pressures internationally. Japan holds a lot of our debt. China holds a lot of our debt. Questions about whether they will continue to unload some of our debt and whether there will be buyers. Because remember, the Fed is also unloading some of that debt as it does QT. So all of these factors coming together at a time where, where's the deficit? $1.7 trillion. I mean, deficit to GDP approaching 7%, which is usually not what you see during a time of full employment and an economy that's growing above trend. And, and interest costs fast approaching one of the largest, if not other than defense, largest line items in the budget. Right. All of this, of course, has been um, the topic of discussion for a series of voices over the past few days. Dalio uh, with you last week, uh, Jane Fraser at City, with you were at the conference on Friday, Williams of the Fed uh, on Friday as well, and then Ackman on Squawk this morning. I think the soundbite that we have stacked here talks about the impact of real rates on the economy. Take a listen. I think the Fed is probably done. Uh, I think the economy is starting to slow. Uh, I think the level of real interest rates is high enough to slow things down. You know, high mortgage rates, high car rates, high credit card rates, they're starting to really have, you know, an impact on the economy. Economy is still solid, um, but it's definitely weakening, seeing lots of evidence of weakening in the economy. Certainly helps that we have gotten a bit of a disinflation trend in Germany and France and Japan and Spain and, of course, with PCE here. Uh, on uh, Friday, uh, or, or the the three-month annualized going to 2-2. Two, two. Everybody's talking about the three-month uh, yep. annualized. That, yep. That's the one to cheer on. Yep. That's what Lael Brainerd from the White House was saying. Back to back to pre, pre-levels, but the core number is still in the high threes, 3.9%. Look, as far as the economy, is it going to do the work for the Fed on inflation from here? That That's sort of what you would hope if you're a bull. Jane Frazier, CEO of Citigroup, here's what here's what she sees in the in the spending data for the U.S. right now and the overall economy. I do think the recession, if there is one here, is going to be very manageable. So it's been elusive so far, um, but I am not sitting there worried about the health of our consumers, worried about the health of corporates. They are strong. They're in res- their balance sheets have been very resilient, and a strong job, uh, job market is also a good thing. Talked about cracks starting to appear in credit, but I think that that, that feeling about the benign environment and balance sheets that consumers and corporates have going into any possible recession, David, is why maybe the market hasn't been more freaked out before about the prospect of an economic downturn. Also, her comments stand in a little bit of stark contrast to what we've heard lately from Jamie Dimon, for instance, of J.P. Morgan, who's a little more worried about it. He is and sees potentially higher rates longer than, than, uh, than consensus, certainly. Lead story in the Journal today is about all the spending still going on by the U.S. consumer. What a crazy piece in the journal today where they basically interview a bunch of consumers who are like, well, can't really buy uh, an apartment or a house, so we will splurge on the Taylor Swift tickets. We will go to Italy uh, and spend 10 grand on a vacation. I'm just not going to worry about it. I think COVID changed all of our our psychology, right? Like you got to live, you got to prioritize what's in the moment. You want to go on that vacation, stop saving for it, just do it. But when I read that, Look, I related to a lot of it because you hear those sentiments, you see it in the data, in the spending data. But it, if the savings rate is down to now lower than pre-pandemic levels, it can't go on forever, right? You can only splurge a few times before then you run out of steam. And I think that as the excess savings come down, as the student loan payments resume today, right, October 1st, 
that ha it's been a moratorium that they've had deferred payments and zero interest rates since the beginning of COVID. That's like three and a half years. We don't know exactly what that's going to do to the consumer spending environment, but every retail analyst and economist is paying attention for sure as it, it's, a, it's a key cohort of people when it comes to student loans. Did you know there's more student loan debt than credit card debt outstanding? Uh, I, I did think I've heard that a number of times. Big. It may have sunk in along the way, yeah. So I guess I will it's go with, yes, as, I did know same that. Same as auto loans, like in the one. It's an enormous trillion. liability. It's unclear yeah. how many people are going to actually go back to paying. Uh, there are efforts underway by the Biden administration to somehow rein, reinstate uh, at least some ability not to pay. Right. But still, it, it's, it, gonna, it's, it's a, a burden. There is no it's doubt a it's a headwind. Uh, and I think about half of the debt on student loans is owned by 10 percent of borrowers who are in the upper quintile of income. It's not a it's not a lower income story. No, but it'll hurt the lower income consumer yeah. even worse, lower and middle income consumer even worse. You know, it's it's so that that's a headwind going forward. At the same time, you know, you talk to these companies and it really depends on what on what industry you're talking to. We, you know, Arvind Krishna was on the show on Friday mm -hmm. of IBM. He was talking about tech spending still being two percentage points above GDP. He sees that continuing to track. And I even asked him about the outlook for 24, and he sounded pretty positive. Listen to what he said there. I think ID budgets, look, we go by the data. We look at what our demand signals are. Our demand signals are driven by our pipeline and by forward-looking bookings. And right now, they still look quite healthy for next year. All that said, we need the next three months to go figure that out for being more precise about 2024. It was a little more positive than we heard from Julie Sweet. A little Accenture. bit, although she didn't seem to want to indicate there was a real macroeconomic slowdown either. The numbers did. The numbers were disappointing. The numbers were harder to talk around in yeah. terms of the revenue decline, you mean. Right. They're so, declining growth. So, I mean, I think it, it, it raises the question of whether tech is, is safe to get back in. You know, the, the Goldman Sachs note this morning yeah. about sell energy and rotate back into tech after the prime broker, you know, the, the hedge funds that they've been tracking saw a big trade in that direction last week. Oh, the notional selling of energy last week, most in six months, notional buying of tech last week, biggest in two months. And then, of course, you have the Goldman also today adding NVIDIA and Okta and Cintas uh, to conviction by replacing those with CRM and Johnson Controls. Uh, so it's a, it is a, a, a muddy debate right now regarding Q4 and the tech trend. Yeah, whether the tech growth will, will continue. I mean, the other debate is who's, who's protected, you know, in this world of higher for longer interest rates. David Costin of Goldman writing that the key risk now for S&P ROE, return on equity, is going to be those higher interest expenses and lower leverage. And he actually picked out, they picked out that team, a few stocks that are more, less vulnerable to that. Costco, Cisco, Cognizant, Paychex, and Visa. Because that really is becoming the new reality for corporates and for consumers. Rate shock. Right. We've got a, we've got a lot of uh, the strategists weighing in. And Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson also, of course, using the opportunity for having had a not particularly good quarter for stocks to to uh, once again say, hey, valuations look even more extended today. Equity risk premium falling below 100 basis points to new cycle lows as both. And again, this gets back to the heart of our conversation. Nominal and real interest rates have risen amid supply demand. And then you have Tom Lee, you know, who is constructive as ever on the U.S. equity markets. And no doubt it's been a rough few weeks, obviously, for his bullish call. But he says that the bottoms up S&P forecasts for Q3 are rising, expected to rise 6.7% X energy 
improving on the 3.6% year-over-year growth seen in, in the second quarter. Seven out of 11 S&P sectors, he said, expect to show positive growth in the third quarter. So he's constructive and he likes all the negativity, thinks it'll help the market. Yeah, September didn't really go his way. I think he was looking for maybe a couple percentage points to the upside. At the beginning of the month, as we know, uh, we came in down about four. Interesting, I think some of the, like, take B of A's top picks today for Q4. Boeing, CSX, Oxy, Kraft Heinz, uh, Teva. You don't really see a ton of tech in there, although I will uh, add that uh, some of Wells' tactical ideas this morning include Microsoft, uh, for example. What's so interesting is that, and you mentioned some of those in there, even though the the economy is softening and you see signs of this everywhere, some of the safest sectors, utilities and staples, have been beaten up the hardest. And then sentiment is so negative on those. Partly, you know, you have higher rates and that that stands in the way. It's more attractive than equities that pay fat dividends. But if we really think you're going into recession, you usually see those sectors outperform. You say so. We can ask the Kalanova CEO about that and these new Cheez-It and Carl, we've got uh, we got Tesla delivery yep. numbers out. I know we're going to get to Philaboa on that after the break, including a bunch of others yeah. as well. Uh, some of these numbers coming in even after uh, estimates had been shaved last couple of weeks. We'll get to the EVs. Got some upgrades, including uh, names like Rivian, which also has their own delivery numbers out. Take a look at the pre-market. Some red arrows to start Q4 when we're back in a minute. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back. Tesla's delivery numbers seem to be a bit below expectations. Let's go over to Phil LeBeau for those numbers and some of the other numbers as well. Phil. David, they are below expectations. The street was expecting Tesla to deliver 448,000 vehicles in the third quarter. Deliveries coming in at 435,000. So not well below, but but definitely below expectations of 448,000. Production for the third quarter coming in at just over 430,000. So for the year now, they've delivered basically 1.33 million vehicles. The guidance, by the way, it remains unchanged at 1.8 million vehicles. And the Cybertruck is what a lot of people are also talking about, guys, as we take a look at shares of Tesla. Remember, the the original target was for Cybertruck deliveries to begin in the third quarter. Well, Q3 has come and gone, and we still do not have Cybertruck deliveries uh, that have begun. That's not a huge surprise. There is nobody that I've come across in the auto world who was sitting there saying, oh, this is a big deal if they miss Q3. They're going to be coming at some point, whether it's in the next month or two. But this is not a surprise that uh, there is a slow 
first delivery, and it's going to be a slow ramp up on uh, Cadence as well. Let's quickly talk about Rivian. Those shares getting a pop after the company reported Q3 deliveries that were better than expected. Deliveries coming in at 15,564 vehicles. The estimate was 14,000. Remember, for a long time, it was 15,000. Just within the last couple of weeks, Wall Street brought it down to 14,000, so they beat those lowered expectations, producing just over 16,300 vehicles in the quarter and affirming its full-year guidance, once again, of production of at least 52,000 vehicles. And finally, All Things Auto. Take a look at the big three automakers, GM, Ford, Stellantis. We talked about this on Friday, guys. Uh, you now have 25,000 UAW workers who are Walk, they've walked off the job. They are picketing out in front of facilities, five final assembly plants. You had the automakers, the, the executives voicing their frustration on Friday. You had Sean Fain coming back and saying, oh, no, we're not going to deal with, with the way these guys are, are, you know, how they're handling things. So uh, we're nowhere closer to a resolution on this. Yeah. Um, Phil, a lot of different things to get to. I'm actually a little curious on Rivian. I mean, they raised all that money in the IPO some time back, but they're losing a lot on yep. each vehicle produced right now. Um, you know, where are they in terms of potentially uh, needing more cash, or do they have enough to take them uh, through this period? They've got enough to get them to the R2 production. Now the question becomes, and that R2 production, they're in the process of building a facility down in Georgia, just to the east of Atlanta, I believe. Uh, it's going to probably come online. You're looking at late 24, early 25, but really production is not going to really kick in until 25, and that's the R2 model, the smaller SUV, smaller crossover SUV, if you will. And so there, that becomes the question, David. Uh, they've got the money right now that's going to get them to where they need to be, at least you know for the foreseeable future. Then you get to R2, and the question becomes, okay, how, how's your funding? Do you need more capital? Any sense, Phil? So now we've seen the, the strike expand in terms of the number of work, workers and yep. number of furloughed. This is obviously something that everybody's watching as it could have an impact on the broader economy and probably already has. Any sense of where these negotiations go this week and how much longer we're, we're going to be dealing with this? I don't think it gets resolved soon, Sarah, and we've been saying that for some time. Look, Sean Fain believes that he has leverage and he also believes that he's got um, he's got enough time on his side that he can push this further. And a good example of that is on Friday, they said they got a last minute offer from Stellantis and where Stellantis has now said, hey, cost of living adjustments, we're willing to, uh, to throw those into the contract, put those in the contract. For a long time, it was, nope, we're not doing cost of living adjustments. Now they're saying we will put those in the contract. That's the kind of progress that Sean Fain is looking for. And the fact that we haven't seen it you know, you know, regularly is not a surprise. I think that Sean Fain and the UAW look at this as we can push this further. We're not to a point where either public sentiment or the people on the line are saying, settle it. We need to get back to work. They're not at that point yet. And therefore, they will continue pushing this. Yeah, that's kind of been backed up in some of the chart work in the last week or so, Phil, showing either uh, that um, that the union wages should have a relatively muted impact on overall wage inflation or in some cases have not even kept pace with non-union wage increases over the past couple of years. That's what drives the workers. And, and when you're out, the, when you go to some of the plants, whether it was in Wayne, Michigan or in Toledo, and I would talk with the people who are walking the picket lines, they truly feel 
like they have been shafted over the last four years. Yes, they were under contract, and nobody's disputing that, but they look around at the rest of the manufacturing complex in this country, and they say, look, look at all these raises that these people are getting. And look at the record profitability of the big three. Why am I getting 3 or 4%? Seriously? That is, the, that is the attitude that you hear from people on the line, which, is, which goes back to Sean Fain and his negotiating style. He believes that he has that support, and it's not eroding anytime soon, which is why he believes he can push the automakers further. Hence why the LeBeau meter is in negative territory. Um, mm-hmm. Phil, oh, yeah. let, me, let, me end, let me end where we started on Tesla. Uh, you know, as you said, still yep. target around 1.8 million uh, vehicles for 2023. Going to report numbers on, uh, what is it, uh, October 18th. Uh, any sense we're going right. to get along the way in terms of particularly de- demand in China and how much that may impact the overall number? That's a great question. I don't think we get it until they report. I think it's going to be during the analyst call that we finally get some better uh, color from Elon Musk and his team in terms of what they're seeing in China. Uh, you know, remember earlier this year when they, Tesla, along with uh, a number of other automakers in China, there was this hope that perhaps they had reached the detente. You know, that they weren't going to continue cutting prices. That hasn't happened. It's continuing to happen, David. And as a result, and I've heard you talk about this at some point, it, you know, Carl, it, it keeps getting pushed lower and lower in terms of the uh, asking price in China. And that is a huge driver of what we will ultimately see for the Q3 results from Tesla. Phil, thanks. Uh, we'll see who has the biggest tolerance for pain if uh, the price cuts continue. That's our Phil LeBeau talking some uh, union stuff and the deliveries this morning. Let's take a look at the pre-market here. Get the first session of the week, month, and the quarter underway when the opening bell rings in about seven minutes. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. IPO window's gotten a little more interesting last couple of weeks, as you know. Today, it's Birkenstock saying that they see an IPO of 32.3 million common shares, uh, range 44 to 49, would raise about 1.6 billion implied valuation, just over nine. Sarah, we'll keep an eye on this as we take the temperature of the capital market activity. Yeah, Norwegian Sovereign Fund is going to be an investor. We learned in that one. We know that LVMH Chairman Bernard Arnault and his family office has been an investor in the past, may also buy stock in the in the IPO. But testing the waters is right. You know, we, I talked on Friday with Adina Friedman, the head of the NASDAQ, and she still called the environment trepidatious. That was her word. And said fourth quarter IPOs, kind of a question mark because they had strong debuts. But since then, the momentum has faded in terms of price action on Arm and Instacart below its IPO price. Yeah, Sequoia actually saying it has not made any money on its 2021 investment in Instacart. Although, again, the big one, Arm, is still trading well above its $51 price. Let's get the opening bell and the CNBC real-time exchange. The big board, it is Telenova, formerly Kellogg, celebrating the separation of its North American cereal business. Steve Kaelane is going to join us on set in just a minute. At the NASDAQ, it is medical technology company Hologic, marking breast cancer awareness month. 
as uh, the Bulls may have been thinking could enter October with a little more heat, but for the time being, opening down about five points on the S&P. One thing on the plus side is that we didn't talk about is the China data. We did get, a, it, was a, it was a manufacturing number and it went above 50. So back in expansion territory, that was a little helpful and also played into the narrative that the China data has turned for the better, that the stimulus is starting to work. It's not booming, but it certainly is important. That's the first uh, above 50 since March. And I noticed, I think it was last week, Mizuho tweaked higher their China GDP forecast for the year. We haven't seen that too often. Although we also got that report out of the World Bank. Did you see that today? World Bank uh, downgrading the, the Asian economic forecast, both for this year and for next year. And part of it is on the weakness in China. I just want to pull up the exact numbers so I get it right. So. Growth for China, they leave at 5.1% this year, but for 2024, they lower their target for China to 4.4% from 4.8%. Um, they, they cited long-term structural factors there, elevated debt levels in China and weakness in the property sector. And then East Asia Pacific economy only expected to grow now 5%, which is also lower because of some of these problems. So that's a focus because for investors, it's, it's been a lot of hand-wringing over the US and, and Europe lately, but you need Asia to grow as well, especially China. Well, China continuing to grapple with serious issues in its property um, sector overall. I mean, we, we've talked about Evergrande and the detention of uh, executives there, although there is a hope of it relisting mm. and then Country Garden uh, and its issues in terms of potential defaults uh, as you take a look at Japan's Nikkei. But yeah, the, the China and how the government responds to it and what they choose to do or choose not to do, given its importance overall in the Chinese economy, in particular for the Chinese consumer, where so much of their uh, savings is really related to their ownership uh, of, of property. And East Asia too, you know, we were looking to countries like Vietnam and Malaysia and Indonesia and the Philippines to grow, and they have been such beneficiaries of the tensions between the U.S. and China. But what's interesting in this report that the World Bank points out is that they're starting to hurt because of some of the measures like the Inflation Reduction Act and, and the more protectionist measures from the Biden administration favoring U.S. manufacturing and Canada and Mexico over places like that where they are actually seeing electronics and machinery exports from China and Southeast Asian countries starting to get hit as a result of all this. Just another sort of global growth factor to watch. Um, wanted to come back to Tesla, which you obviously heard the delivery numbers, Phil LeBeau reporting them, 435.1,000. Uh, street estimate, Phil had it at 448, others have it as high as 455. The point, though, is that for Tesla, it was a miss. And Dan Ives, big friend of the show, uh, obviously a big bull on the stock, says, in a nutshell, nothing to write home about in these numbers. The street will be left wanting more. That said, of course, uh, he does, does note they are still committed to delivering 1.8 million uh, overall vehicles for 2023. And he does see, as you might expect for somebody who's quite bullish on the stock, momentum ahead, um, better days ahead as well is another way he put it for the, uh, the next year of 2024. Yeah, some of the estimates prior to last week were in the 515 range uh, and it gotten cut. Uh, largely on factory downtime in Austin and Shanghai. So it's hard to know how much is a demand story and a sheer and production And Tesla story. just said that in the release. They said planned production, they planned overhauls of the factories, which is something we announced and we're remaining unchanged on the delivery number. So maybe, you know, Tesla's, te Tesla's down a little bit, but maybe that's why we're not seeing a bigger decline there. Though it is interesting that we're seeing a little bit of a bounce today in Apple and NVIDIA and Meta and Google and Microsoft 
because that certainly wasn't the story for September, especially with Apple. Yeah, in fact, tech's pretty much the only thing working at the moment uh, with Infotech and communication services, the only sectors that are green. But watch some of the, uh, the legacy economy names. FDX gets an upgrade today. Susquehanna goes to positive. They were at 225. They go to 315. Long-time opportunity, they say, in cost rationalization and much more favorable guys to FedEx than they are to UPS. So we'll watch some of the transports this morning. I also, I mentioned Apple. Um, Apple... I guess the news today is they're going to issue a software update to address the iPhone 15 overheating complaints. Not sure if that's, that's a factor. And then there's this, this report, I'm sure you guys are all over, as, as I am, from a, from a trade magazine on, on F1, in the business of F1. There's a report that Apple is looking at a global media rights deal for F1 for $2 billion. It's interesting for a number of factors, right, because Apple did the MLS deal and is obviously benefiting a lot from that from Messi. But F1 has never had a global deal like that. So it's, 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 we can contemplate it. Apple's not responding. Is F1 Formula stock up? Because responding. actually F1 stock, sorry to cut you off, has been down lately yeah. in part because um, TKO, mm -hmm. the merger of WWE uh, and, and, uh, and, um, Ultimate w Fighting, w thank you. Yeah, the merger of w and UFC. UFC. Um, that's TKO, had been, you know, getting hit, you can see, as a result of coming in with a sports rights deal with our parent company, uh, with NBC and with Peacock, that was not, at least, what many investors had hoped. And so uh, Formula One had also been down. It's obviously a Liberty company. Sarah, I know you've been following closely. Yes. Um, and then larger questions when you bring up Apple and sports rights about their commitment to it, about how deep they want to get into sports rights. Because in a, in a way, given it was live programming, you can argue about WWE, and, but live sports programming uh, and it not coming in with the number that might have been anticipated. A lot of concern I picked up over the last week in part about, well, how, how is that ultimately going to play? Will the NBA do as well as it expects to? The NFL is sort of its own thing. You have to own it. But that becomes a kind of a question. And one of the keys is how big will the streamers be overall, but it, particularly the ones that seemingly have no price cap, Apple and Amazon. Right. Um, but they have not seemed to yet be willing to fully be in. So that's an interesting you know, idea if they were willing to go for $2 billion for global rights for, uh, for F1. Well, but al and also that's not how F1 packages it right now as a global rights. For instance, ESPN has the U.S. rights to Formula One, and that's locked up to 2025. So this is kind of a longer-term story. You can see it is having a very significant impact on uh, on those shares. Again, they had been down in part because yep. of uh, worries about their ability to negotiate given TKO. It's a big number, and it's a bigger number than anything F1 has gotten. But it speaks to the rise in popularity of the sport globally yeah. and in the U.S. especially. Meantime, today we finally have a meeting between the actors and the AMPTP, first time in months, uh, not doing a lot for the uh, legacy media names, but we'll see, uh, David, if they can recreate some of the momentum that the writers got really in a hurry. Yeah, I mean, a bit of a bump last week in many of those names after the, uh, the writers did reach uh, that, that deal. But no updates that I've heard of, Carl, in terms of at least getting a sense as to how far or close they are to an agreement with the actors. Did you see that brutal downgrade of Toast? We don't talk about Toast that much, but so this is the restaurant tech company that went public in 2021. Mizuho, Dan Dolev, who, who covers tech and payments. So he downgrades the name $30 to 16 on the price target. And you know why? The obesity drugs, the Ozempics of the world, this is becoming a bigger theme. 
the concern is that Americans and people around the world, because a lot of them are on these drugs, are going to be eating less and they're going to be dining out less. And he says the threat to the restaurant industry from these GLP-1s, these are the obesity drugs, and by implication toast, is real in our view. And, you know, I went back and looked at this. Darden last week reported results, actually got a question on the conference call about well, these drugs. Kramer, said, yeah. not worried Kramer about last week was, we were charting Hershey yeah. uh, versus right. Lilly. And then we looked at Medtronic and a bunch of like just yeah. expats. And we looked at McDonald's yeah. as well in part. This has been a theme lately, it's whether real. it is proved correct or not. And, you know, I know a lot of hedge fund managers, I've been talking about it over the last few months, who've been wondering at least out loud whether or not it was worth trying to short some of these names in part because. Food names. Yeah. Yeah, or even fast food. Again, who knows? And Coca-Cola as well. And then if Jim were here, he'd talk about alcohol because it may have an impact as well on that or your desire for it. Smaller portions. Yeah. Cocktails in the UK are smaller. That's the trend right now. Cocktails. Cocktails. Yeah. That's unfortunate. We don't want to drink as much. Really? The UK? So then they have like 20 of them instead of, you know. Well, I <laughs> you mean, just ordered two at a time. Yeah. Really. I mean, have you ever been out for happy hour in, in London? <laughs> Yes, but at, at the fancy UK cocktail bars, I think that they are more oh, trend-setting than got it than the, the pubs. US, oh, the okay, and the pubs. understood. Yeah. I'm not talking about the pubs. Right, got it. I'm not talking <laughs> about. Meantime, Kellanova, a formerly known as Kellogg Company, successfully completing the separation of its North American cereal business today. Company's now going to focus on snack, international cereal, noodles, as well as uh, North American frozen foods. Steve K. Helene joins us here on set after ringing the opening bell. Talk through the spinoff, Steve. Welcome, which we've talked about for a long time. Finally here. Yeah, finally here. We're very excited to ring the bell this morning. It's been 18 months in the making, and Kellanova, you know, is off to the races today. You want to remind viewers about the motivation and the thinking behind this from the from the get-go? Yeah, so you know, we felt that the cereal business could really flourish by being an independent company focused on North American cereal. And what gets unlocked with Kellanova today is the fact that 80% of our portfolio is now snacking in international businesses. Very high growth, growing like a snacking uh, powerhouse that it is, driven by five of our largest brands, Pringles, Rice Krispies Treats, Cheez-It, Pop-Tarts, Eggo Waffle, you know, all high growth, very differentiated, very advantaged brands. And we think the market will appreciate the underlying strength of that business more as Kellanova than they have historically. How do you compensate, though, Steve, for the lack of scale? Because that's what it has been always about in these industries, getting shelf space, scale on manufacturing and on distribution. And now that you're going to be leaner, it's better, I guess, to, for innovation to be more nimble. But the scale is a, is a negative, isn't it? Yes, sir. We still have tremendous scale. So you're talking about a $13 billion business. $2.7 billion we're, we're um, divesting, obviously, we're spinning off. But in North America, where we're spinning it off, we are still a very much scale player. And we're growing faster than uh, most retail is. So we provide a tailwind of growth. And again, Pringles, Rice Krispie Treats, Pop-Tarts, these are great brands. So we don't lose any scale or scale advantage uh, with our customers. They're great brands, but are they growing market share, Steve? Well, you really have to look at a two or three year trend because there's been so much noise in the system, so much pricing that we've taken. So over that time period, yes, they're all growing and they're growing share and they're growing nicely. Steve, given the conversation we just had before you came <laughs> on, I do have to ask you, are some of these new drugs a concern at all in terms of people's willingness to eat a lot of Pringles or Pop-Tarts? It won't affect me, I can tell you right now. 
but it, on, you're, but you're but, not on them. Uh, well, I like Pop Tarts. But you're not on <laughs> yeah. obesity. I am the, not the, on the, the obesity. The drug will literally right. not work on David. That's yeah. what he's saying. It, exactly, yeah. it okay. won't work okay. on me. Okay. No. In all seriousness, is it, you know, it does yeah. it become a concern in terms of we, consumption? Well, first let me say we are not complacent about anything. We are being asked the questions. Heard you guys talking about it, but it is way too early and very premature to talk about. We don't know the penetration that these drugs will get. We don't know longitudinally what happens with consumer behavior. We know what people are saying they're doing in terms of uh, you know changing their the uh, their diets and so forth. But you know it's just way too early to tell. We'll watch it. We'll understand exactly who's going to be on it. But then very importantly, understanding what if anything behaviorally changes over a period of time. Yeah. And it's just it's just far too early to to forecast this as a headwind in, in our opinion. What about you mentioned pricing? When do you expect volume and price to cross paths again? Yeah, we think it's starting now, really, and into next year. So if you think about the last 18 to 24 months, we've taken 30% pricing. That's like 10 to 12 years of pricing in a very short period of time. Of course, it's going to affect volume and, you know, the elasticities are returning. But as we get to 2024, our supply chain is now back to pre-COVID strengths and even stronger so we can, you know, we can make our customers orders at a fill rate that's very, very high. We can bring innovation back to the fold. You know, we've been innovation suppressed because of the pandemic, because of the supply chain bottlenecks and shortages. And, you know, pricing doesn't have to be, you know, continue to go up. We're looking at a more benign cost inflation environment into next year. So all those things really work to help us think about volume in a more constructive and, fashion. And to, to the degree you were discounting now, are, is it getting the reaction function from consumers? like you expect? It's starting to, but we're not back to the levels of frequency and promotion that we were pre-pandemic. We're getting there. So back to school was a little bit more familiar to, uh, you know, to our consumers, more like pre-pandemic. And as we get into NFL and, you know, you get to think about Super Bowl promotions, I think that going into next year, you're going to see a very exciting retail environment, the likes of which we haven't really seen since COVID. Really? Because so the other concern around packaged food right now, besides the fact that you don't have the same kind of pricing power, is that that we're going that we're starting to see consumers trade down, that consumers are pinched, especially at the low income. And it's coming amid even even more headwinds like the student loan payment reduction. Are you seeing any of that? There is no question that consumers are feeling the strain. We are not seeing trade down. We're not seeing growth of private label in any of our categories. And so, you know, we work very hard to earn the right to be in that shopper's basket. So we have to think about affordability. We have to think about package sizes. We have to think about where consumers are in their journey from a monthly standpoint. At the beginning of the month, times are a little bit easier. At the end of the month, times are very, very mm. tough. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's still a lot of headwinds for the consumer, but the U.S. consumer and, indeed, the international consumer have proven to be very, very resilient through what otherwise would be a really challenging set of circumstances. So Steve, you've created this uh, uh, pure play now, uh, but I wonder, do you expect to grow it simply organically or is it possible given you do have a currency, there may be some brands out there that fit into the portfolio. How does M&A, if at all, figure into your strategy? Yeah, so our balance sheet is very, very strong right now. Our leverage ratios are down. We have dry powder. We can definitely make acquisitions. We will measure that against the organic opportunities we have in front of us, which are fantastic. You know, we're only starting to expand cheese it outside the United States, for example. So we've got tremendous organic opportunities. If we see something inorganic that can add share owner value, we'll be a disciplined buyer. Finally, Kelanova is... Kellogg and Nova meaning new. Is that fair? That's right. That's right. We wanted to keep the iconic K. We wanted to keep the beginning. So when you see Kellanova, we want people to think, I recognize that. What is that? And it starts the conversation around who we are and who we aim to be. I remember when we spoke, when you first announced 
that's the split. And the big concern was keeping the Kellogg name. You guys did that, and the serial name as well, keeping yeah. Kellogg, yeah, true to the history. We're thrilled. One of the biggest things when we announced this to our employee base was, you know, I'm so proud to say I work for Kellogg. Please don't take that <laughs> away from me. And, you know, so the, 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 uh, our employee base was very excited when we announced Kellanova. They're very excited about the future. And, uh, you know, it's, it starts today. And you, you've maintained the dividend. I know that was a key throughout, correct? Yeah, we maintain the dividend hole between the right. two companies. Yes. And so the vast majority of that dividend goes with Kellanova. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's an important to our stock. It's important to our share owners. So, yes, it remains completely whole. Steve, congrats. Thank Good you to have you with us. Great to see you in person. Great to be with you guys in person. Steve Thank you. Uh, let's get some PMIs out a couple of moments ago with Rick Santelli. Hey, Rick. Hi, Carl. Indeed, these are much stronger than I expected. 49.8, 49.8. But what it doesn't dismiss, even though it's better than expectations, it still represents nine out of ten negative numbers in a row. Uh, nine out of ten under 50. That's now the sixth in a row under 50 in contraction mode. However, 49.8, after having said that, is still the best since April when it was above 50. It was 50.2. And this is also a very important day because if the data is a little better and getting closer to 50, we see long-dated Treasury yields are all on track to make new cycle-high yield closes. We want to pay very close attention to that. In the vernacular of traders, we're guns hot in Treasuries. And Squawk on the Street will return after a short break. It is the first trading day of the fourth quarter. We've got the S&P 500 a little bit lower. Tech is bucking the overall lower trend. NASDAQ's up a third of 1%. Communication services and information technology, the only sectors higher. Bob Pisani joins us here at Post 9 looking at some of the early movers. Morning, Bob. September is living up to its reputation, of course, as the worst month of the year. The hope here is that earnings kind of distract everybody from the rising interest rate situation. We'll see. It's nice that tech's bouncing today, a little bit of communication services. I want to point out, though, the economically sensitive sectors still continuing to be under pressure. So the transports, they've been terrible performers, 13% off the 52-week highs. Consumer discretionaries, 10% off its 52-week highs. The Russell, forget about it. Small cap stocks, 13 14% off of their recent highs. So I'm nice to see the tech bounce. Look at consumer discretionary today. Yes, it's a little weak because Tesla uh, is weak. But we had decent reports from Lennar, AutoZone recently. They're doing nothing, essentially. No real bounce here in that economically sensitive sector. So we're going to the earnings season. Here's the good news. The numbers have been going up for the third quarter and the fourth quarter overall. That's good news. We've had August reporting companies 16, 15 of beat. That's good news. The estimates are rising modestly here. Here's the problem. We got to see what the September reporters are doing because that's when the interest rates went up. Pepsi starts the September quarter. That's October 10th. Not JP Morgan. It's Pepsi that actually starts uh, with the September quarters. The problem that we've got here is the estimates have been going up, but not enough to overwhelm the interest rate scenario. Look at these companies that have had their estimates raised by analysts recently in the consumer discretionary group, Amazon, GM, Horton, Ford, Meta, Netflix, Alphabet, and communication services, tech, NVIDIA, Apple, Intel. This is fantastic. This is the best that you could ask for. Rising expectations for earnings in the biggest companies that are out there. And yet it's not helping because it's being overwhelmed by the macro situation. 
being overwhelmed by this, that 10-year yield that we've been seeing that's such a problem for everybody and for all of the situation right now. And of course, take a look at Lennar. I just want to show you this here. September 15th, Lennar came out. Excellent earnings. They beat on the top and the bottom line. Look at it. It's been down. Yet they said business is good. They're taking business away from existing home sales. It doesn't matter. Rising interest rates, you sell consumer discretionary, you sell autos, you sell home builders. So a good earnings picture overwhelmed by the macro situation. And you've been talking about this, Sarah, that 10-year yield is the biggest problem that we've got out there. And that's what we want to hear on the earnings call. How much is the that impacting the consumer right now? You see what it did to Lennar on a great earnings report. Overwhelmed by that kind of situation. Well, and it also means utilities, real estate, and staples are the worst performers, which would typically do well during economic softness. But with those rising rates, you want to watch something attractive. now. Watch the high yield, like HYG. Watch high yield ETFs right now, because if in fact there really is a problem there, those groups that have the most debt outstanding, they're going to be the ones that are going to be a little more sensitive right now. I'd watch HYG. Bob, thanks. Okay, we'll talk pleasure. a little bit about Bassani. Still to come this morning, Wharton's a professor of finance, Jeremy Siegel, on how to get ready for Q4 when we're back in a couple of minutes. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.